From Two Keto LLC, it's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on the show today, Derek takes on cancer. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. Today's show centers around patient Derek Green, an otherwise healthy middle-aged man with colorectal cancer. Derek embraced the idea that his diet had everything to do with his cancer, and therefore, maybe he could use diet to reverse it. Derek grew up in Ottawa. He never really had a problem with weight or blood sugar. He had a fairly normal childhood. Um, I'm adopted, so I don't know much of my uh, medical history going back, but I was, in, I was in good health. I never had any issues like that. In 1988, he went to university. He got married raised a family. I'd been having warning signs of, um, of some issues, some, uh, you know, some symptoms. Bleeding, bloating, etc. I had uh, previously ignored and kind of went away and came back a little bit. And uh, I was a really busy guy. So like a lot, of, a lot of people, I probably put it off a little bit too long. In 2016, at the age of 46, Derek got some unsettling news from his doctor. I started uh, getting these symptoms again, so I went in to, uh, to get checked by my, uh, my family doctor there and um, found out that, uh, that I had stage three colorectal cancer. Stage three is the last stage before the cancer escapes and metastasizes. They're uh, really encouraging early, early detection and that sort of thing now with scopes and, and uh, preventative things like that. Because it's slow growing and you can catch oftentimes polyps before they turn cancerous. Uh, so by the time it you know, is cancerous and develops into stage three, it's been there for, for quite a while, most likely. Derek didn't have any metabolic issues before this. I had never been on any, any kind of medications for anything like that. No, I was fairly active, fairly athletic. He was fairly active, but he did have a bad diet. He had five children at home, a busy real estate job. But interestingly, Derek felt that he could change his diet and somehow affect the cancer. Some people feel that cancer is mostly a genetic disease. That, of course, is Dr. Jason Fung. And this is sort of the prevailing sort of cancer paradigm for the last, say, 30 years, um, is that cancer is caused by genetic mutations, which um, cause uh, cells to become cancerous, and then they grow, and that's what happens. So things such as um, ionizing radiation, for example, can damage DNA, which can cause uh, genetic mutations, and so on. Unfortunately, this sort of um, ignores a huge body of evidence that suggests that cancer is largely an environmental disease. There are certainly some cancers that are highly hereditable. And that is co-host with me of the Two Keto Dudes podcast, Richard Morris. If you have a strong family history of particular types of cancer, then there may be nothing that you can do about your risk. 
and maybe the longer that you live, the greater that risk. But there is a good argument for many cancers to being environmental. Because if you look back at um, populations that eat a very traditional diet, that is Africans, um, sort of Aboriginal peoples in, in Australia, for example, there is virtually no cancer even in those people that live to a very old age. So it's not uh, simply that these people didn't live long enough to develop cancer. It was basically an unheard of disease. As you uh, saw the diet sort of become more westernized, more processed foods, more sugar, uh, more refined carbohydrates, then you saw the incidence of cancer increasing. And cancer um, has never really been thought of in that manner. If you look at the causes of cancer, what uh, people think about uh, most classically, for example, is smoking. So smoking damages a lot of the lining of the lung and out of that damage, uh, you become at very much higher risk of cancer. Certain viruses can cause cancer. So um, I've seen bar virus uh, can cause Burkitt's lymphoma and nasopharyngeal uh, carcinoma, for example. Hepatitis viruses can cause cancer. So there's sort of this mishmash of things that can cause cancer, none of which are particularly genetic. Uh, they, they are more environmental. Another environmental factor for disease is diet and obesity. What is interesting in the last sort of 20 years is that there's an increasing appreciation that obesity may also lead to cancer. So cancer, um, as, as we've developed this sort of obesity epidemic, uh, rates of cancer have gone up. So when they study uh, diseases, for example, what they note is that the um, incidence of uh, obesity um, rises, the incidence of cancer rises. There's also a link to type 2 diabetes. And um, nowadays, there's uh, the World Health Organization recognizes approximately 40% of human cancer as diet related. Did you get that? The World Health Organization says that as much as 40% of human cancer is diet related. So that's a really stunning number because diet and cancer are not commonly thought of in the same sort of sentence. And yet, you know, even mainstream medicine has acknowledged that many of these diseases are obesity related. So breast cancer, for example, is something that is highly, highly um, environmental. That is to say, we've known this for uh, quite a number of years. One example of this is looking at breast cancer rates amongst migrants from Japan to the USA. Japanese women living in Japan have a very low rate of cancer. If you look at the population of Japanese women who live in San Francisco, the rates of breast cancer are three to five times higher within two generations. Genetically, these are virtually the same population. So there is apparently something environmental that is predisposing women in the USA to a higher risk of breast cancer than in Japan. Japan is also a first world nation, so this observation is not confounded by migration from third world nations. For many years, it was thought that dietary fat was the cause of the cancer, but despite sort of 40 years of trying to show how dietary fat was going to cause cancer, uh, they really haven't been able to show anything of the sort. One of the, the um, strong links is 
with sugar, we see the incidence of cancer rising with the incidence of uh, sugar consumption. And certainly, if you compare Japanese consumption of sugar in Japan versus uh, United States, there's a huge discrepancy, which may account for a large part of that. So the question is, what is the mechanism uh, whereby obesity uh, can re lead to a rise in cancer rates? And one of the things that we have to look at is how uh, sort of what cancer is. So cancer is this sort of unregulated growth of cells. So anything that is going to help cells grow is not likely going to be uh, beneficial in the treatment of cancer. That is why chemotherapy and radiation really are forms of killing cells. So chemotherapy, for example, are essentially poisons. They kill off the cancer cells slightly faster than they kill off the regular cells. So cells that are proliferating, that is cells that are growing very, very quickly, are killed off. So cancer cells are growing quickly, so they're killed off. Heart cells, for example, are not growing quickly, so they don't tend to sustain as much damage when you give this sort of systemic poison such as chemotherapy. The reason you get nausea, for example, is that the cells of our uh, intestines and esophagus uh, turn over very quickly. So they sustain a lot of damage and therefore people get nausea and uh, vomiting. Uh, hair follicles also proliferate very fast. So you, when you administer chemotherapy, people's hair falls out. You have this disease, which is sort of unregulated growth. Um, in the adult body, cells do not grow very fast. That is, there's a certain turnover of bone or muscle or liver or whatever, but it's not very fast. In, in comparison, uh, cancer cells kind of, don't, they don't go faster than normal, but they don't stop growing. They just kind of keep on growing and growing and growing until they uh, become very big and then they metastasize, which is they um, move out of where they originated from and grow somewhere else, which is usually what kills you. So cancer is this disease of unregulated growth. So what you really want to do is uh, turn down the growth pathways. Obesity is a disease of too much insulin, as we've discussed sort of numerous times. It's not too many calories, it's too much insulin. And one of the key growth factors is insulin. So insulin tells the body to grow. The reason for that is that there's a very tight correlation between nutrient sensors and growth. That is, your body, in order to uh, adapt to the environment, will only grow when nutrients are available. Therefore, your body has these sort of nutrient sensors that can sense when food is coming in. One of those is insulin. Insulin, when you eat, insulin goes up. So you signal to the body that food is going in, and that signal is very tightly correlated to growth pathways so that um, the body says, hey, there's lots of uh, nutrients available, let me grow my cells. If you have a lot of insulin, then the cancer cells are the cells that are most likely to be able to take advantage of this and they will grow very fast. So in um, the lab, for example, if you look at breast cancer, you see that breast cancer cells require a substantial amount of insulin in order to be grown experimentally. 
So that's the sort of link between obesity and cancer, hyperinsulinemia and cancer. You don't necessarily need to be obese, but high insulin levels are going to promote the growth of uh, cancer cells. So one of the key sort of dietary treatments that we use um, is a ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting with the with the entire point of shutting down insulin, um, which is the nutrient sensor, which shuts down, therefore, the growth pathway, slowing down the growth of the tumor. So I was the guy in the McDonald's drive-thru three times a week. Um, never thought twice about it, you know. Derek purchased the book Cancer Killers by Charles Majors, which he intended to give away. It sat on his shelf. And uh, after my diagnosis, I remembered I had that book and opened it up and uh, started reading. Uh, and there was, uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful book, uh, very, very concise, almost, almost um, you know, in bullet points, with mainly focusing on, on uh, prevention and uh, taking ownership of the disease and not, uh, not taking the attitude that it's just something that kind of falls out of the sky and happens to you. But especially with colorectal cancer, it's highly lifestyle related. Uh, you know, the, the tough pill to swallow is that there's a good chance you may have brought it on yourself. But then the flip side of that is if you've brought it on yourself through lifestyle issues, there's a higher likelihood that you might be able to reverse it through changing those, those bad habits and that sort of thing. In the appendix, there was a short list of reputable cancer clinics recommended by the author. One was in Toronto. So, as I was reading that book, I, I was referred to a surgeon in, uh, in Toronto, Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. I had to wait six weeks to get in to see him. Uh, and obviously, you can't sit on your hands for six weeks when you're told you have cancer. So, after reading this book, it opened my eyes to, uh, to some possibilities of things that I could do while I waited. In April, he went there for a 21-day IV protocol while he was waiting to see the surgeon. They had him drastically change his diet. It didn't go all the way into ketogenic. It wouldn't have been a ketogenic diet at that point, but it was very low carb, cutting out all the refined sugars, all the flours, all the bread, and you know, all the fruit, everything. And within two weeks, my symptoms disappeared 100%. I couldn't, it was, it was astonishing. In the middle of May, Derek went to see the surgeon whom he told didn't want radiation or chemo because he was convinced his cancer had reversed. And it hadn't. Uh, the, the tumor was marginally smaller, but it was still stage three. Based on numerous recommendations, he decided to go through with conventional treatment, radiation and chemotherapy. A chain of referrals started happening. This is what I always tell people is just... You know, find find people that are experts in the field, uh, that are knowledgeable. Don't don't Google, you know, because you might land on the right person, but you might land on the wrong person. You might land on uh, on on an expert who's who's unbiased and unprejudiced and unjaded, and you know, will give you will give you unbiased wisdom. Or you might land on the 12 glasses of carrot juice day a day guy I like to say and you know it might cure you but it might kill you <laughs> so you know find find genuine experts in the field and get on the phone and you know if if they are really 
uh, worth worth their uh, worth their salt, then if they don't know the answer to the question, they'll admit it and refer you to somebody who does. And that's the sort of thing that began happening. His surgeon, Dr. Fodor, in Toronto, got him in touch with a nutritionist, Dr. Susan Brown, in Syracuse. She referred him to Dr. Ralph Moss, a cancer researcher in Lamont, Pennsylvania. Dr. Moss has spent 40 years researching cancer. He was the doctor who ultimately convinced Eric to go through with the conventional treatments. Um, Dr. Moss has been uh, uh, writing and researching on um, every, everything cancer-related for the past 40 years. He, he operates a, uh, a business called Cancer Decisions. It's cancerdecisions.com is the website, a phenomenal resource. Um, and he is, uh, he, he is, he is a genuine, um, you know, a, a genuinely excellent resource, uh, very knowledgeable, well-connected with, you know, expert researchers and, and clinicians, uh, and, and completely unbiased, which is a very difficult combination to find, uh, within the, uh, within the cancer field. So... Uh, Dr. Moss publishes uh, Moss, the Moss Reports, which are um, massive documents, very detailed on specific types of cancer, which you can purchase through his website. So I did that. I had a couple of uh, phone consults with him. And it was, it was him, actually, who recommended that I go through with the conventional treatments. You know, based, based on the research, if it had been stage 2 uh, colon cancer, then he said his advice would be, you know, think twice about it. There's minimal benefit at, at that point to to um, the treatments. But with stage three, so the research does show a, a benefit. It's it's not huge, but it's there. So so based on that, he recommended I, I go ahead. And based on his advice, I did. And it was the right thing to do. Dr. Moss referred Derek to Dr. Fung in the IDM program. Jason um, agreed to take me in, even though I'm not diabetic, just as a, as a bit of a special case. And it was through uh, Ralph Moss and Jason Fung that my diet then went from just low carb and transitioned into ketogenic. If you elevate blood glucose and you have cancer, you'll provoke the tumor to grow faster. That was Professor Thomas Seyfried of Boston College. He has done fundamental research over many years into interventions, including ketogenic diets, to restrict energy to cancer cells that fuels their growth. You can't completely shut off the body's source of glucose. It will always make an essential amount. But there are ways to restrict it using ketones. Professor Seyfried's team developed the Glucose Ketone Index, or GKI, whereby if you can get the concentration of glucose in circulation in millimoles per liter to be close to the concentration of ketones in circulation, also in millimoles per liter, then that puts pressure on the fuel source for cancer cells. Many cancer cells can only ferment glucose for energy, but the non-cancerous cells surrounding them can still oxidize ketones and fatty acids for energy. A ketogenic diet supports the energy needs of non-cancerous cells while restricting the energy supply to cancer cells. Professor Seyfried has also been a consulting specialist for a number of clinical trials around the world, including several in the USA, using ketogenic diet with hyperbaric oxygen, one using paleolithic ketogenic diets in Budapest, and on one in Turkey, using ketogenic diets, hyperbaric oxygen, and low-dose chemotherapy. 
Well, the colorectal cancer um, with ketogenic diet was uh, seen in patients by Dr. Dawn Lemain from uh, Oregon, and she also has a clinic in Arizona. She had a patient with colorectal cancer that was cleared up completely. Uh, and I think she was using ketogenic diet with hyperbaric oxygen, not radiation. The group from um, Hungary, Budapest, is using a, a paleolithic ketogenic diet uh, with rather excellent success on a variety of tumors. And they use only the diet, they don't use anything else. Dr. Moss also put Derek in touch with a genetic testing lab in Germany and found out the chemo he was taking wasn't very effective. The radiation was the real cancer killer. Uh, I know from our studies in, in, in Turkey, where we're using hyperbaric oxygen, ketogenic diet, um, and some other uh, drugs, minor, very minor, um, that we're getting very excellent success for a broad range of, of metastatic cancers. So how is it that a clinic can treat cancer with such a very minor amount of chemotherapy drugs? We're using the lowest dose of chemo that's possible without the physicians losing their license. So, uh, and they, I told them what would happen if we use no chemo, and they said the results would be better. That's astonishing. Yeah, well, don't forget, chemo is a very a po a poison. Why would you treat anybody with a poison? Um, the profound ignorance of the field is doing that because they don't know anything else. Um, so you poison people to make them healthy. And in some cases, you do, in fact, uh, you know, resolve the cancer, but you've now put the poor patient at risk for all kinds of other maladies. I had transitioned to the ketogenic diet as I was uh, going through the, um, the neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy and radiation before my surgery. So I was driving every day up to up to Oshawa and receiving this radiation and the uh, and the chemo, and uh, the diet really minimized my side effects. I had I had minimal side effects, a bit of muscle fatigue toward the end of it, um, but not much besides uh, minor nausea from the chemo, but uh, nothing to speak of, you know, compared to what a lot, what a lot of people go through. Uh, and then there was about a 10-week break between the, uh, the last radiation treatment and my surgery, which would have been September 2016. And the uh, pathology, of course, Sunnybrook does their own pathology after the surgery on everything that they remove. And uh, the report came back that I had a, a pathologic complete response, which means there's nothing left of the cancer at all. I'm shocked that some that so many cancers in, in patients are responsive to the ketogenic diet. We have tumors in the mice that uh, are very responsive to ketogenic diets, and then we have other tumors that are very non-responsive. And uh, some of the metastatic cancers that we work with are less responsive to ketogenic diet. Um, and that's because many metastatic cancers come from the immune system itself, like macrophages. And macrophages are a big glutamine consumer cell. So some metastatic cancers may not respond as well to ketogenic diets because they have the capacity to use glutamine. And then you could shut the glucose down, but the cells will still survive. But in humans, I'm I'm be honest with you, I'm shocked that I've never seen our mouse our mouse models never respond as effectively as the humans do. 
Insulin is not the only nutrient sensor in our body. So there are actually three nutrient sensors. The insulin, which we talk about quite a bit. The second uh, is mTOR. mTOR is an acronym for the mammalian, sometimes called the mechanistic, target of rapamycin, which is a nutrient signaling kinase that tells a cell that it has found a supply of amino acids. The uh, thing about mTOR is that this is actually a very, very old nutrient sensor and can be found even in sort of unicellular organisms. So evolutionarily speaking, this is found sort of from anywhere from yeast to human beings. So every sort of form of animal uh, or life form in between has this sort of uh, equivalent uh, mTOR. Its main role is a nutrient sensor. It senses that uh, dietary proteins are coming in, so it's very sensitive to amino acids. So if you're eating protein, this stimulates mTOR uh, because it senses that. Uh, insulin, on the other hand, doesn't just sense carbohydrates, but senses carbohydrates and protein. mTOR is sort of exquisitely sensitive to protein. Certain drugs uh, which block mTOR are used as chemotherapy. And our third sort of nutrient sensor is AMPK, which uh, is sort of a fuel gauge for the body, but it's sort of a reverse fuel gauge. That is, when AMPK is higher, then uh, the cellular energy stores are lower. When we turn our fuel into energy, a common unit of energy is a molecule called adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. As we use some of that molecular energy, it becomes adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, and if we use a little more of that molecular energy, it becomes adenosine monophosphate, or AMP. AMPK is a kinase, or a signaling enzyme, that signals the cellular ratio of the lower energy AMP molecule to the higher energy ATP molecule. In other words, when our cells are starting to run low on energy, they signal that status using AMPK. So they operate in this sort of uh, in, in tandem. So insulin goes up and down very quickly. It goes up and down sort of within minutes to hours. Uh, mTOR takes a little bit longer. So within days and AMPK, which senses sort of the entire energy spectrum of the cell, uh, takes kind of days to weeks uh, sort of thing. So they operate on different time scales. They also operate uh, sensing different things. And in that way, your body can sense sort of how much energy is out there and therefore how much growth um, to, to stimulate. So if you simply eat a sort of a very low carbohydrate diet, uh, if you eat a very high protein diet, you may do very well to lower your blood glucose, you may do very well to lower your body weight, but you're not going to do very well because protein, especially animal protein, is uh, stimulates both uh, AM uh, sort of mTOR and insulin, and also uh, lowers your AMPK because it's a it's an energy source. So M AMPK can sense all of um, glucose. It can sense carbohydrates, protein, and dietary fat. So simply a low carbohydrate diet um, is not going to have much of an effect to turn down these nutrient sensors and turn off those growth pathways. You do a little bit better by going to a 
ketogenic diet, which is, again, very low carbohydrate, but sort of moderate protein and high fat. By not eating so much protein, you're not getting as much mTOR or insulin effect. Um, and then you go to intermittent fasting, which is where Derek uh, kind of sought our help. Because intermittent fasting, of all the sort of dietary interventions, really is the only one that has the ability to turn down all three nutrient sensors. That is the... Um, it is going to drop your insulin, it's going to drop your mTOR, and it's going to raise your AMPK. One interesting thing about AMPK is that you can stimulate it with a diabetes drug called metformin. What this does is it tells the cell to burn more fat and in the liver to make less glucose. This fools the cell into believing it was in a low energy state. This would also turn off growth pathways, and that may be the mechanism of why metformin appears to decrease cancer recurrence, especially in breast cancer. So this is the uh, point that we were at with uh, Derek. Uh, he has referred to us uh, in terms of using dietary treatments as a sort of adjuvant therapy. So remember, in the treatment of cancer uh, with diet, we virtually never recommend that people do not take their standard treatments. So if somebody recommends chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, we say, you better go do it. We don't know that these dietary treatments are actually strong enough to completely do it by themselves. It's okay to use these dietary therapies on top of conventional treatment, but don't ever think to go against it because the evidence is not there and it's not our advice to do that. And that's one of the things we stress almost at every single visit with Derek is that if somebody tells you to do surgery, then it's a good idea to do it and don't think that the um, ketogenic diet or the intermittent fasting is going to get you away from doing that. The protocols that we use for uh, Derek um, really don't exist. So nobody really knows whether or not this has any benefit. It's really just never been studied. It's a fascinating sort of area, but whether or not it, it turns out to be true, I just don't know. So there's a lot of sort of uh, evidence from animals and uh, theoretical reasons why this works, but we really can't say that it works 100%. Um, in designing these protocols, what we did was that uh, we tried to maximize sort of uh, this autophagy, uh, which is this sort of protein breakdown and cleansing of the body that you get from about 24 to 36 hours. Um, now, because he didn't need to lose a lot of weight, we wanted him to eat uh, plenty when he did eat, so not to, um, to drop too much body weight, because that can also be a very poor prognostic indicator. So we had him do sort of uh, a couple of short intermittent fasts and then once every few months we would do a long extended fast to see if we could kind of uh, gain the benefits of both extended fasting and intermittent fasting um, sort of thing and try and stress those cancer cells out and sort of starve them out um, and really what we're trying to do is turn down the growth pathways. To reiterate Dr. Fung's position, it's not just lowering glucose that helps in the fight against cancer. It's lowering the growth factors. Some people say that what we do is we try and starve the cancer of glucose. That's not actually true. There always is blood glucose. So if you look 
at blood glucose levels during somebody who's fasting, it's normal. So a normal blood glucose, for example, might be uh, 3.5 to 5, for example. And whether you eat or you don't eat, that blood glucose level actually stays at that range. Some people will drop into the lower range. So we know lots of people who check their blood glucoses and so on. And it may drift down towards kind of 3.4, 3.5. But it's not like the glucose goes down to zero. So what we're trying to do is not starve the cells of glucose. It's a, it's a very convenient way to think of what we're doing, but it's not technically correct because that blood glucose stays in a normal range no matter uh, sort of what you eat. Uh, or don't eat. So even a ketogenic diet does not drop your blood glucose um, from a normal range, somebody who's not diabetic, into the very low ranges. It would be very dangerous. Your body maintains that blood glucose there for a reason. But what we do is try and turn down the insulin pathway. So again, uh, once again, we see that people sort of um, uh, confuse blood glucose with blood insulin. They're completely different. Um, uh, what we do is try and turn down the mTOR, turn down the insulin, and in that way, try to influence uh, the effect of it. Dr. Fung also has questions about the role of autophagy in battling tumors. Autophagy, again, excessive. We, we don't want to do too much of the intermittent fasting because you do need to make sure that you maintain your strength and also, especially in somebody who's relatively lean to begin with, and also excessive autophagy may or may not be um, uh, detrimental too because there's some evidence that because autophagy is a sort of a prolongevity cycle, you may actually make these cancer cells more likely to survive. So um, that's why we didn't want to push it too much with one sort of strategy. The surgeon told Derek that a pathologically complete response only happens less than 10% of the time once you get to stage three. And how much did his tumor shrink? From seven centimeters to a scar. Nothing. It always blows my mind um, whenever I talk to an oncologist or someone in the, the field of oncology. We talk about PET scans. So PET scans are tests that you have that are used to detect cancer. They literally inject you with glucose and the cancer gets so excited by the glucose that they're able to image it um, and sort of see where the cancer is and the, the amount of cancer that's there to a certain extent. Um, so they feed the cancer glucose to excite it because cancer thrives on glucose, cancer multiplies on glucose. You know, it's like mold and moisture. You know, if you have a moist environment and a little bit of mold, you know you're gonna get an outbreak, it's plain and simple. And it's the same thing with cancer. So I talked to these oncology experts and we talk about the PET scan and we talk about glucose and they all have this like aha moment. One of the things that, uh, that that Jason Fung had me do, and I still haven't quite forgiven him for this, is he had me uh, he had me do a seven day water fast right immediately following my last um, radiation treatment uh, for to get into some deep autophagy to to uh, multiply the effectiveness of the conventional treatments as well. So I did that and survived that. Actually, only lost a couple of pounds. It's not as scary as it seems. 
so you know these are all these are all combinational things, and and who can tell uh, you know what was more effective than than the other? Uh, certainly, cumulatively, there there was a strong synergism. Megan Ramos referred Derek to the Marsden Oncology Center in Toronto. The doctor there ordered a circulating tumor cell test. There's a danger of cancer cells that have escaped into the blood and spread out. The initial test showed there was a low amount of circulating tumor cells, but they were still there. So he continued with a low-dose chemo, ketogenic diet, and added some other therapies, such as high-dose IV vitamin C infusions. A few months later, he had another circulating tumor cell test, and it came back with zero. He is now completely cancer-free. So it's, you got to be in the mindset that this is your therapy. This is, you know, it's not always going to be pleasant and it's not always going to be fun and it's going to be hard at times and you're not always going to feel great, but it is your therapy. It is your choice of therapy. I never like to really preach at any of my my patients or clients unless I need to. And um, when I see someone that just gets so stuck in the mindset that this is, is a diet program, you know, just like all the other weight loss programs out there, and then I'll I'll talk to them about how this is this is a therapeutic program, and I you'll really drive into them, and I'll share stories like Derek's. Um, and like that, that younger gentleman um, and his interaction with Dr. Fung that day, and that changes their mindset. And we try to talk about that in our inpatient training um, and our online training as well. But this is a therapy, and that's why Derek's been so successful. He turned food and, eat, uh, and eating and his eating habits, such as meal timing, into his therapy. Derek, can you see yourself on a ketogenic diet for the rest of your life? Absolutely. Uh, I'm fully, fully keto adapted now. Um, you know, I haven't had a people always looking at me tell me I haven't had a piece of fruit in nearly two years and I have 200 grams of fat a day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by conventional wisdom, I should have died uh, about 30 deaths by now, right? But uh, I, I feel healthy as a horse, um, you know, energy levels through the, through the roof, great mental clarity. And I, I could, I'm, I'm glad to continue for life as long as, uh, you know, I mean, I'd, who knows what uh, five, 10 years brings, but I've got no plans on changing it, no. Well, congratulations, Derek. You did it. Ah, another happy ending. Well, that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast. Lessons and Stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.